All right, flip to Ezekiel 37. On the back of your music there, we do also have some information about the prophet and the book of Ezekiel, just giving you a little bit of a context of the book as a whole so you can kind of see what it is we're, we're looking at tonight. But we're going to be in Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14, and I'm going to allude later to the very last verse of the book just to explain that because it, is a, it ends on a very interesting note, as we'll see. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. Let's read that. These are the words of God. The hand of Yahweh was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of Yahweh and caused me to rest in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them all around, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord Yahweh, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Lord Yahweh to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you and make flesh come upon, up upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am Yahweh. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a noise and behold a rumbling and the bones came together bone to its bone and I looked and behold sinews were on them and flesh came upon them and skin covered them but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says Lord Yahweh, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these who were killed, that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great military force. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life, and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken and done it, declares Yahweh. Let's pray. Our Father and God, you are the God of grace, of, of mercy, of un, unending pleasure, of unending mercy. God, we cast ourselves at your feet, confessing that we need that grace and mercy to visit us once again. We have no doubt been tangled up in sin this previous week and we wish to gather together to confess those sins so that we can be forgiven and, and be healed. And I ask that you would help us to understand as we look to your word, aiding us with your spirit's illuminating work. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well tonight, as I mentioned, we're considering the prophet Ezekiel. He was a contemporary of Jeremiah, someone who labored at this, around the same time, but they don't mention each other, which is interesting. But Jeremiah, we saw last week, lived a very, very, very challenging and difficult life. He was called to be unmarried and without kids. 
He was thrown into prison. He was rejected wholesale by his fellow Israelites and so on. It was a difficult road for Jeremiah. That's why they call him the weeping prophet. He suffered much anxiety and frustration as he ministered. He was a prophet, we might say, just to sum up who, who Jeremiah was, he was a prophet who preached the in, impending covenantal judgment of God. And of course, Jeremiah's ministry had led up to the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon, including their three subsequent deportations. Uh, Ezekiel, you may recall, was deported in the second Babylonian deportation, and that happened in the year 598-597 B.C., and you can read about that in 2 Kings 24. Daniel was hauled off to Babylon in the first deportation, which happened a few years before that, around 605-604 B.C. So Ezekiel's call, interestingly enough, we don't get a whole lot of details with the prophets except for Ezekiel in the very first chapter, the very first verse, we are told very specifically when God appeared and, and gave Ezekiel his prophetic ministry. It was July 13th in 594 B.C. Now that's taking the Hebrew calendar and sort of transposing it into the Gregorian calendar that we have today. But July 13th, 594, that was his first oracle, his first call to preach to Israel and Judah. And his last call, his final oracle, when it was all said and done, was uh, actually in April 10th, 574. So you can do the math. That's roughly 20, 21 years of ministry for Ezekiel. So far, we've talked about the various ways the prophets ministered to the people of God. That was their role. You had prophets, priests, and kings, and we've been dealing with the prophets specifically. And what they did was bring covenantal lawsuits to the people of God. They would, of course, prosecute them as if they were a prosecuting attorney in the courts of heaven, and they would bring the charges of God against them. That's the prosecuting role of the prophets. And of course, they also persuaded Israel. They attempted to persuade them, to woo them back to God and their covenant. And of course, they would even predict what would come about should they repent or continue in their obstinance. Now, Ezekiel's contribution to the prophetic literature comes to us from within the exile itself. He has already gone to Babylon, now he's in the exile. And that's when he starts his, his work. And Ezekiel, interestingly enough too, uh, it comes from a very, 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 it's a perspective of a priestly vocation, essentially. There's a lot of priestly language and overtones. Uh, Steve read from Ezekiel 4 and this weird image of carving out a city on the brick and baking bread over human dung. <laughs> Hopefully you caught that. There's a lot of Leviticus language, though, in that that teaches us about the holiness of God. And so he's sort of acting that out, which we'll talk about in a second. But he's a priest in that way. He's standing between God and the people. That's what priests do. And that's why Jesus is our great high priest. And no pastor, no, no elder, no, no pope is to stand between you and God because you have access because Jesus is our priest. And he sits enthroned in heaven. Now, Ezekiel's father was Buzi, himself a priest. Uh, he, Ezekiel's unusual, shall we say, even bizarre priestly behavior, uh, it comes to us uniquely expressing God's views of, on judgment and hope, but that's set within the context of the covenant. 
So he's always invoking the covenant. He's always invoking what God has done for the people and, and how they need to repent, they need to turn. But these things he does are, are very strange. We already talked about the strange things Isaiah had done and even Jeremiah. Well, Ezekiel does way more <laughs> strange stuff. Uh, Ezekiel was uh, married, but his wife dies in chapter 24. And that's for a very specific reason. The reason is it anticipates the exile's response to Jerusalem's destruction, the temple's destruction, and the death of their relatives. Death had visited Jerusalem uh, because of Nebuchadnezzar, because of the Babylonian powers, and Ezekiel's wife dies, and God essentially says, well, that's what's going on here. So even she's used as an illustration. Her, her life and death was basically a prophetic picture as well. The message of, of Ezekiel, if I could just sum it up this way, it's very simple. Devastation now, redemption later. Almost like Jeremiah, prophet of doom. Devastation now, but redemption later. Ezekiel, he's well known. His book is well known because of all the bizarre sign actions, we can call them, contained throughout his ministry. Twelve times, more than any other prophet, twelve times Ezekiel functioned in a very specific priestly role to Israel, acting out unusually odd things. Now, I already mentioned his wife's death. Was, that was part of that. That was a sign act. But on occasion, God would come to Ezekiel and silence him and tell him not to speak. Just don't talk. And that silence of Ezekiel was for complete speechlessness. That happened leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. That's in chapter 3 and chapter 24. In chapter 4, which we talked about, he uh, acts out the siege of Jerusalem, which was just read, baking bread on the coals of human dung, switched to cow dung, fairly bizarre, fairly strange things, but it's very priestly, his interposition there. In chapter 5, something strange happens to Ezekiel. One-third of his hair is burned, one-third of his hair is chopped up with a sword, and the other third is scattered by the wind, which actually represents what's going to take place when Babylon comes and destroys Jerusalem. So one-third burned, one-third shot with a sword, one-third taken, probably, I don't know, ripped out or something, but taken and sent with the wind. And all of that is a representation of what was coming. So that's why he was a very unique individual as a prophet, acting in a priestly capacity to demonstrate what was happening. Now there is a remnant mentioned as well. And by the way, in that same chapter, Ezekiel takes some of his hair, presumably the ones that weren't burnt, uh, and he takes some of his hair and he actually uh, binds it to the hem of his robe. God tells him to take some of it and put it on his robe. Just strange stuff, right? In chapter 37, immediately following the passage of the, the Valley of Dry Bones that we're looking at tonight, Ezekiel is told to bring these two sticks together, essentially two separate sticks, bring them together, and that was signifying the future Messianic kingdom, which will unite the house of Judah with the house of Israel. So just interesting visualizations. You know, I remember growing up in church and they would have the puppet ministry. And if you grew up in church, you remember the puppets. And some of them are freaky looking, frankly. Um, but it's a visual reminder. Obviously, it stuck with me all these years. <laughs> and I think there may be a place for those t sorts of illustrations. But not only did Ezekiel act out much of his priestly role, he had, an, he had incredibly vivid visions as well. 
In fact, one would miss out on much of the meaning of the book of Revelation if you didn't understand what Ezekiel is about. Uh, John borrows from, from Ezekiel a whole, lot of the, a whole lot of Revelation is sort of a recapitulation of what happens to Ezekiel, some of his visions. Some of it's changed, but you clearly see and hear Ezekiel there. Some of the visions that Ezekiel had that were somewhat, uh, <laughs> somewhat vivid was uh, one of them was pertained, one, one pertained to the abominations that were done by the Israelites. So while Ezekiel is far off in Babylon land, uh, there's this, he's in exile. Ezekiel is basically in chapters 8 through 11, God yanks him by his hair. <laughs> I don't know how much was left at that point. Because in chapter 5 was when the hair thing happened. But God, it literally, it says in the text, he grabs him by his hair, but he's transported to Jerusalem. So vision, sort of out-of-body experience for him in the spirit. And he's transported to Jerusalem to see the rancorous cultic sins that are going on in the temple. Just the evil wickedness that was going on there. And he sees executioners going through the city, and these executioners are destroying people. But that only happens after there is this priestly figure who marks people so that they're spared from the judgment. But he sees this going on in this sort of prophetic vision that he has. There are people spared from punishment and ruin, but then there are people who were guilty because of their sins, and these executioners were going through and, and killing them. Furthermore, other visions have to do with Yahweh departing the temple. Ezekiel sees this vision of Yahweh departing the temple, heading out east, and he's gone. And, and that's like total abandonment, all right? I mean, you don't, you're not supposed to do that. That's Yahweh's temple. And the question that looms over Ezekiel is, okay, well, was God going to come back to Zion? That's the question. Is he going to come back to his temple? We know that Malachi would actually tell us about that. And Jesus is the one who suddenly comes into the temple. He is, he is the Yahweh in the flesh. So that's the major question. Would God return to Zion? How could God possibly allow the destruction to take place? Well, <laughs> Ezekiel says, well, it's because you guys have sinned a whole lot. But the question then with Yahweh leaving is, is he, is he going to come back? Aside from the Valley of Dry Bones that we just read and we're going to look at, one of the greatest visions is that of Yahweh's presence coming back to his people in chapters 40 through 48. So that's one of those tough sections of Scripture. Sort of like when you get bogged down in Leviticus and, or bogged down in Numbers. There are places you can get bogged down in. Ezekiel 40 through 48 is one of them. Ezekiel's temple, it is called, is a vision of hope for a weary people. We find that Jesus fulfills this very temple image. Uh, Ezekiel sees the temple. There's water flowing out. starts low and it rises up. There's this restoration imagery. And Jesus is the one who actually fulfills this temple imagery. And living waters flow from Jesus himself as he establishes his people as a temple made of living stones. Remarkable vision, if you ever want to dig in. It's an interesting section of, of the Bible. As far as some thematics are concerned, Ezekiel tells us a lot about uncreation and recreation. Uncreation and recreation. Devastation now, it's almost as if the created order is being demolished, but redemption later, a recreation of things. Ezekiel, uh, you'll recall from the scripture that was read, he is called son of man, which you should know is just as easily translated as being son of Adam. 
the word Adam is what we in the Hebrew, we get Adam. Ezekiel is infused like Adam with the Spirit of God. Just like when Adam was fashioned, he had the Spirit of God blown into him, had the breath of God blown into his body, and he became alive. In fact, Ezekiel, he faces temptation surrounding food. Same thing that happened with Adam. Remember, Adam and Eve were told not to eat of a certain food. But here, Ezekiel's, it's, it's reversed. Ezekiel is told to eat and consume whatever Yahweh commands him to eat, rather than refraining from something God had pro- prohibited. Now, the food that is good to the eye and desirable for wisdom, the food, you may, some of you may remember this, but Ezekiel is told to eat a scroll. So he's told to eat a scroll, and in Ezekiel 2, it's a scroll that's covered with words of lament and sighing and woe. Ezekiel must eat the words of God and find true wisdom, unlike his father, Adam. So as a result of his obedience, Ezekiel finds the scroll, I don't know, and only in God's sovereignty, but he, find, he, he eats it and it's sweet as honey. It's sweet as honey, Ezekiel 3, verse 3. And then, only then can new life be brought to God's people. So this like Adam creation Genesis language is used, like Ezekiel's almost rehearsing the Adam story again, but doing it the right way. This new Adam can now father a new creation community, which is what the Valley of Dry Bones is all about. So let's look at our text again. Let's read one through three. The hand of Yahweh was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of Yahweh and caused me to rest in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them all around, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Note that. They were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord Yahweh, you know. So the chapter begins, and we're immediately confronted with a problem. Israel is in exile, and they have been in exile at this point for more than 10 years. And any hope that they had at this point had been entirely squashed. Lost hope, covenantal death. Uh, The valley is full of very dry bones. That's the language. And this is a grotesque picture of death and destruction. They're very dry. What would make, what's in the sky that would make them dry? The sun. The sun had officially, the war is over at this point. The bodies are there. The sun had done its job. All that's left are bones, very, very, very dry bones. All the corpses were dried out. They were white bones laying there in the valley. It's as though Ezekiel was actually seeing and visiting the battlefield after time had passed. Some time had passed over the valley. And these bones are Israel. They're just dry. Uh, It's a vision, no doubt, that that the Holy Spirit had brought Ezekiel to. But, let's be honest, with the destruction that took place, it was very much a real scene that many Jews who were leaving Jerusalem would have, of course, witnessed after the siege when tens of thousands of their countrymen were put to death by Babylon. So the problem that we see is that covenantal death had taken Israel. They had apostatized. God had judged them. They are dead. They are just dry bones. And it's a direful situation. Israel had been ejected from the land, seemingly forsaken by God. Uh, Their spiritual condition is death. That's it. Their egregious and detestable wickedness had earned them death. Paul says it like this, the wages of sin is what? 
death. So what will God do? Curiously, God asks Ezekiel if Israel can be restored from exile by asking if these bones can live. Can these bones live? Can Israel, who has been hauled off to Babylon, be restored as the people of God? Ezekiel's smart enough. He's smart enough to know that God can do it, but the question is whether or not God will do it. Only you know, God. Of course, only you can restore the people of God. Look at verse 4, 5, and 6. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Lord Yahweh to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh come upon, up upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive, and you will know that I am Yahweh. God tells Ezekiel to preach to Israel while they're in exile. The preaching ministry keeps going. After all the sin and damage has been done, they're to go and preach. And namely, they are to preach the word of Yahweh, the text says. So God promises that he alone can make them live. Only God has the power to raise the dead. God alone can bring Israel back to the land of promise to return her to a resurrection-like life after being hauled off to Babylon. Only God restores people, right? And he does that, he says in the text here, so that you will know that I am Yahweh. I just think of our nation today. <laughs> you know, who among us has dared to pray, God, do whatever it takes so that we will know that you are God? And buckle up. <laughs> Look at verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. Ezekiel is faithful, right? He prophesied, and there was a noise. He hears a noise, and behold, a rumbling or a rattling, some translations say. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh came upon them. The skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Note that. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says Lord Yahweh, come from all the four winds, and O breath, and breathe on these who were killed, that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great military force. I love that language. Ezekiel, he's the new obedient, uh, the obedient new Adam in this situation. He obeys and he prophesied as he was commanded. But there are two stages. Pay attention to this. There are two stages in this incident. First, Ezekiel must preach to the bones and command them to hear the word of God. So when we preach to people who are dead in their sins, we're just supposed to preach to them. That's how it goes. They're dead. We preach to the bones, that's what they are, they're bones, and we command them to hear the word of God. The rattling and rumbling of the bones being reassembled was heard. Uh, you can all hear that, right? You can hear that as I say it. You, you can hear the bones. Uh, sinews, that is the tendons and ligaments, and the skin were being assembled back on the people together. But there's no breath in them, verse 8. So that's the first thing. He preaches the word of God and they're assembled, but now they're just standing there, no breath in them. Remember Adam? Formed and fashioned, but not yet alive. Not yet alive. Second stage, Ezekiel essentially prays that the Spirit of God 
uh, offers a recreation to Israel, breathing into them, just like Adam in Genesis 2, verse 7. And what does God breathe? The breath of life. Now you should know, in Hebrew and in Greek, the word for wind, breath, and spirit is all the same. Ruha in Greek, or excuse me, in Hebrew, and pneuma in pneuma in Greek. One word that describes three different things. And the word uh, ruha is actually used a, a lot here. But there's no breath. The spirit comes and breathes. They're alive now. And there's a lesson here. We must, we must preach and we must pray. And we don't have to choose between the two. Look at verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. This is Israel in exile. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. When I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life, and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken and done it, declares Yahweh. Ezekiel is told that covenantal death can give way to covenantal life, but only through the preaching and prayers of God's people. God is planning a revival for Israel. And he does this by giving the fresh wind and fresh fire of his Holy Spirit. Prior to this section, we have a vision in chapter 36 where God acts because his name is profaned among the nations. I mean, I, I just that's like my prayer today. Lord, your, na your name is being profaned in this nation in a way unfathomable. So God, would you act? That should be our prayer right now. But God does act because of that. He, he plans to sprinkle his people with clean water, helping God's people put away their idols. He also says he will give them a new heart of flesh, replacing that heart of stone, a.k.a. regeneration. We'll come back to that. And he puts his spirit in them and causes them to walk in God's statutes, careful to do God's judgments. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you are caused to walk in God's way. We still wrestle and struggle with that, but that's what the Holy Spirit does to us. So God's work of revival is God's and God's alone. You know, we, we preach, we proclaim, but it's God's work. Uh, man may preach what God's Word tells him to preach, but the work is always front to back, top to bottom, inside out. It's always and entirely a work of God. God will restore Israel. God will restore his church. So Israel must repent and believe. And frankly, even that repentance and belief, that's a gift too. So what can we learn about this text? Well, Ezekiel's preaching spends ample amount of time critiquing Judah and Jerusalem. He spends chapters 4 through chapter 24 critiquing his own people. It's a lot of text. But he also issues oracles of judgment against the nations as well, and that's in chapters 25 through chapter 32. Now you might ask, well, why would God preach against the nations? He's just dealing with his people, right? Isn't the gospel just for the people of God? Well, no, obviously. The church, we don't exist for our sake. We exist for the sake of, of the world. But the reason the prophets would come along and they would criticize, heavily criticize the nations is because they too, despite Israel's unfaithfulness, they too must repent. So that's like one of the things abolitionists like to say is, come repent with us. 
And that's our attitude. Come repent with us. It's not like we had this all figured out. Come repent with us. That's what the nations must do. They must repent. And just because the light of the nations, Israel, is rather dim at the moment, doesn't mean that they aren't called to covenant faithfulness either. Everyone's called to covenant faithfulness. Even the most ardent, staunch atheist is called to covenantal faithfulness. And God would actually, in the Bible, this happens often, and even Isaiah speaks of Cyrus and others, but God raised up foreign nations to make sure that the judgment started with the household of God. That's Peter's language. That's why our, our biggest problem in America isn't gas prices, as difficult as that is of a thing right now. The biggest problem isn't what's going on in the White House. The biggest problem is the church is still not what she needs to be doing. She's not where who she's supposed to be. So God raises up the nations to make sure that judgment starts with the house of God. But here's the thing. If judgment starts with the house of, household of God, then judgment ends with the households of the nations. So Israel's vocation over and over was to be a light to the nations, to demonstrate the stability of God's law word in guiding individuals to self-government, in guiding families into economic prosperity and productivity, in guiding the church in how to teach the nations to obey God. The stability of the law and the predictability of God's sanctions are to be understood and they are be, to be proclaimed. God, God tells us what blessing looks like. It's very obvious. We have to do the things necessary to get to that. Which means stop doing the things that's getting us to the judgment. That it's very simple. The nations were, tall, were, were to look to Israel as a guide for how to best structure their societies. That was their role. How to best explore the creational structures God has given to us so that we can take God's law, positivize it to make it applicable, make, it, make an application along the way in, the, in all the sciences and technology and all this stuff and so forth. But we know Israel failed. Israel failed and they had to be remade. Now the recreation motif finds its fullest expression in the Newer Testament. Jesus Christ, do you remember what he is called? Son of man. You should be thinking when you're reading the Gospels, son of man, son of man. Ah, yes, that's Adam. Oh, Ezekiel as well. There's language like that all throughout the Old Testament. You should be thinking of Psalm 8 too. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is a son of man? There's language all over. Jesus brings that all together. Jesus Christ is the new son of man. He is the true son of Adam that everybody's been waiting for since the first Adam screwed it up. And we screwed it up in him. And we would have done no better. So don't get too arrogant. <laughs> Jesus Christ is King Adam II. It was Christ's obedience that has now untied the knot of Adam's sin. Just look at Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. God's Spirit at Jesus' baptism rested upon him in order for Jesus to recreate a people whose hearts were inflamed by the Word of God. Now, the Bible uses the language of firstfruits, and Jesus is a firstfruits of sorts. Let me explain. In every way, Jesus goes before us. In every way, Jesus goes before us. Just like the pillar of fire and the, and the cloud that led Israel through the wilderness, Jesus goes before us. Jesus died the covenantal death that belonged to us. His death was to be our death. Don't skip ahead here. His death is our death. Everyone has to die because of sin. Jesus is our death in our place. 
And yet, he was raised, just as we will be raised, so that the victory he achieved would be given to us. Now, so his death is our death, his burial is our burial, because we too have to put those sins away, burying them in the belly of the earth, swallowing it up, just like Jonah was swallowed up by the the large, great fish. And Jesus' resurrection is, of course, our resurrection. He is the first fruits of a new creation harvest, whereby we, the regenerate people of God, we are changed and we are made new. Only in Christ do the bones come together. Only by the Spirit of God does the breath of life come. Now this is basic Christianity 101. The Spirit of God gives you a heart change. And He gives it to you, not because you were good enough and you, you know, impressed the throne of heaven. Wow, look at them. They're great. Let's do that. No, it's all of grace. It's all of grace. God has elected and chosen His people. He has put His Spirit within them so that they will walk in accordance to what God has commanded. Walk in His statutes and do His judgments, the text says. But that's the Spirit's work. That's why we're Reformed. That's why we're Calvinists, because it's the glory of God in that act, not the glory of man who is so good and smart and winsome enough to choose God Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. No man can come to me, he says, unless the Father draws him. John 6, this is the work of God. It's the work of God from start to finish. We're dead bones. We didn't put ourselves together, slap some skin on it, and breathe into ourselves. You know, we we don't contribute anything to our salvation, but the sin that made it necessary for Jesus to come and rescue us. So only by the Spirit does the breath of life come. And the exciting thing about all of this is that Jesus fulfills what Ezekiel prophesied. So much of Jesus' ministry can be traced back to Ezekiel. Covenantal cursings. That's our doing, right? We we just, we don't get it right and God brings the cursings, right? But, But Jesus, though, he took those cursings on himself. He did it for us. On the cross, he fulfills the covenant's demands on our behalf. And as a result, he enables us to walk in those very blessings. So the devastation that we deserved, Jesus took. The redemption that we don't deserve, Jesus gave. Ezekiel, Jesus. That's the heart of the gospel message. We'd only, <laughs> the devastation we deserved, Jesus took for us. The redemption that we didn't deserve, guess what? Jesus gave it. In addition to this, there is another correlation between Jesus and Ezekiel, especially pertaining to this passage here. As a spirit-filled man, Jesus preached the coming of the kingdom of God. And what made him so utterly controversial was the fact that this kingdom was near, as in just around the corner, as in Jesus brought the kingdom when he was hoisted up on his cross throne. He, He said it was coming. It, it literally in Greek, the language there is at arm's length. I mean, it was right there. It was all coming. He was preaching it. They didn't like it. They, did, they hated him for it, but it was coming. He had bound the strong man, Satan, casting him out and deposing him. Now it was the time to establish his blood-bought people. That's what Pentecost stood for. And by the way, today is Pentecost Sunday on the liturgical calendar. But Pentecost Sunday was the day the church was baptized. Okay. The church was baptized, and when the tongues of fire Holy Spirit descended on the church from the heavenly altar, the preaching of the church in the same manner of Jesus, who was filled with the Spirit, became, guess what? The torching of Jerusalem and her temple. 
When the tongues of fire descended, we usually get caught up into all the charismatic stuff here. But when the tongues of fire descended, it's an image of the heavenly altar. Remember the, the coals that touched Isaiah's lips? The heavenly altar representing God's wrath burning against sin. Those tongues of fire came and rested upon the people of God so that they can go and set the world on fire. When God's people are brought to the spirit fire, they burn the dross of sin in the culture. And what gave the early church its power, and don't miss this because Christians today are all just a whiny defeatists. It's annoying. Oh, woe is me. Just take what you can get. No, fight for crying out loud. That's a different sermon. Now I'm going to change, change directions here. <laughs> what, what gave the early church its power, and this is the same thing that gives us our power today, was the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus called on his elect during his ministry, just like Ezekiel called on the remnant. Same, same thing here. Jesus, too, was preaching to a valley of dry bones in first century Israel. A valley of dry bones. Jesus, in his ministry, was taking the two sticks and bringing them together, reuniting the houses of Judah and Israel uh, together, bringing them together. But part of that ingathering, and this is what makes the gospel so crazy, part of the ingathering was to gather both the lost sheep from the house of Israel and, guess what, the lost sheep from God's elect from the Gentile nations. That's different. So who, who is the church? If somebody asked you today, who is the church? If somebody asked me that, here's what I would say. Who is the church? It's resurrected Israel. Resurrected Israel. Who is the church? It's the people of God who have been stitched together by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. We were dead. We were lifeless. We were down to the bone. That's how it went. Laying in the sun, baking in death. And God brought us to life. And you see, Jesus is, is Israel. Jesus is Israel. He is the federal head of Israel, no doubt, but he is the federal head of all mankind. He is the second Adam, the last Adam. He is King Adam II. And Israel was to be a light to the nations, but they had failed miserably. So what did Jesus do? Jesus took on this very task. Jesus even rehearsed Israel's entire history. If you recall, after his baptism, do you, do you remember where he went? Any kids remember where Jesus went after his baptism? Mark tells us, because Mark stitches the story together very intentionally. He went out into the wilderness. And he was with the animals, Mark says. He's Adam. He's Adam. He's, he's Noah again. <laughs> he's all of these things. He's retelling the entire story of Israel. He became, in other words, by obedience, he became the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. That's Israel. Israel was called to be that. They were the, Jesus took it on himself, though. He became that beacon of light that Israel could never be apart from the Spirit of God. So Jesus is Israel, yes, but Jesus is also the temple. And this is what made the religious leaders so frustrated when he said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll, I'll rebuild it. They're thinking the actual temple that's in process of being rebuilt and restored right now. And he's talking about the temple of his body, the living water of God's spirit flowing out of the holy of holies. That 
word of, that, that word of God's law that blesses the nations. It flows out through the sanctuary. It flows out through the, the bread, the lampstand, the altar. It flows out into the world, much like the rivers that had flowed out of the mountain of Eden that flowed out into the rest of the world. That's a picture of the church. That's Jesus. That's who the church is called to be as well. In Ezekiel's heavenly temple is reshaped with the vision of a new Jerusalem in, in the book of Revelation. John's Revelation, Revelation 21 through 22. This new Jerusalem coming down to the earth. It's the, it is this picture that Revelation explains about the first century and what Jesus was doing in his great work of redemption. With the coming of Christ, the final temple had arrived. Taking on flesh, he tabernacled among us, John says. And as God's people, we, because of the grace of God, we come to Christ by faith alone. And we only come by faith alone thanks to the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. But we are this very temple. We have been spiritually resurrected to labor in the world as we await bodily resurrection. We have come to the holy mountain. We have come to the very city that Abraham had sought for. We have been established as the Zion of God. The Israel of God, Paul says in Galatians 6.16. And God's presence is here with us. He is with us. If the church could believe that, my, what power we would have. That He is, in fact, with us. And that, friends, is how Ezekiel ends, by the way. You should turn there and look. Ezekiel 48. And we'll, we'll stop here. Go to the very end of the book of Ezekiel, verse 35. That's how he ends this whole thing. There's the judgment of, of, of God's people, the fall of God's people, the judgment of the nations, and then all this restoration language at the very end of Ezekiel. But here it says, The city shall be 18,000 cubits roundabout, and the name, catch this, the name of the city from that day shall be Yahweh is there. Book over. Yahweh is there. We are in Christ. We are that garden city temple. And Jesus is here with us. Our inheritance is secure because Jesus has done the work. He has clothed us with the finest of clothing, that perfect righteousness of Christ. And the army of dry bones that was dead and made alive, guess what? That's you and I. That's you and I. And and don't ever forget where you came from. Don't ever forget where you came from. You didn't come from glory. You came from a sun-baked valley where we laid there dead without the breath of life. But God brought us to himself. We are the military that was referenced here. We are the assembly of the living bones. Christ has made us alive. He has made us alive as a church militant. And may God give us the grace to live in this calling to know Yahweh truly, to follow Christ passionately, to be filled with the Spirit completely. Let's pray. Father, you've been gracious, so, so gracious to us. And Lord, we, we do have much to lament today, and we certainly do lament <laughs> where we find ourselves. But we also cast ourselves upon your grace and your mercy. And we know that you're with us. And we know that these, these visions that you gave Ezekiel in, in the future coming of the kingdom, we know that that's been realized in, in Christ, that he has established his kingdom and he is making all of his enemies a footstool. And, and you have called us to be 
the people of God, this temple that sends the word forth into the world. I pray that you would strengthen us as individuals. Help us to be people who are holy, who are seeking you. Father, I pray that you would strengthen our families, God, as well. May our children grow up to be militant in defending the gospel and the word of God. And God, for our church and the, and the greater church, God, would you awaken us? Awaken us to service of one another, to love for one another, to, to courage and boldness in a, in a culture that is, is, is in desperate need of it. So we honor you and we sing to you. We take communion together for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.